Hi, I'm Dave Reinersman. Welcome to the Marvels of Science, a new podcast about the science and tech of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All your favorite heroes and villains from Emil Blonsky and the Abomination to Bruce Banner and the Hulk. Speaking of the big green dude and his crew, today's topic is the Hulk himself. Here with me to tell us what gamma rays are and whether they can give me rage-inducing superpowers is Lumen Wright, our science expert today, a PhD candidate working at the Triumph Particle Accelerator in Vancouver. Thanks for joining us, Lumen. Happy to be here. And our color commentator is Danny Mortensen, a friend of mine right here in D.C., who works for the Special Olympics. And that's maybe not as, like, cool of a thing to do as nuclear physics to a science nerd like me, but what good is all the scientific progress in the world if we're not doing it within as inclusive a society as we can? Soapbox aside, welcome to the show, Danny. Well said, Dave. Appreciate you having me this evening. The Hulk, aka Bruce Banner, was working to recreate the super soldier serum that turned skinny Steve Rogers into Captain America when he was accidentally blasted with a whole bunch of gamma radiation. Following the disaster, whenever he gets too angry or stressed, he grows into a giant green guy with super strength and a hard time controlling his temper. A modern day Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's a lot to unpack in that. But first, Danny, you told me you're a big fan of The Incredible Hulk. You are, I would say, pretty soft-spoken, very kind, very polite. <laughs> Do you sometimes wish you could Hulk out and less lo- let loose? Is that why you're a Hulk fan? I suppose so. I think I have always found an interest in stories of th- this kind of archetype where there is a you know mild-mannered person who has some secret, really incredible uh, power, whether that's a mild-mannered scientist who becomes a monster or a seemingly gentle old man who's actually a amazing powerful wizard you know just things like that and um i don't know if there was just something that tickled my like nerdy bone since i was little and then i just appreciated the more modern somewhat truer to life takes on it in the recent <laughs> movies the sort of effort to cloak it in science i'm talking about science not magic well magic's just science that we don't understand yet exactly <laughs> And sort of psychoanalyze what Bruce Banner is going through and all of that. I have two topics in the future for which I want to find a psychologist. One is that in Iron Man 3, it appears like Tony Stark exhibits symptoms of PTSD and panic yes. attacks. Yes. I want to talk about how accurate that was and what that really looks like. And then I also want to talk about split personalities, multiple personality disorder, the words we used to use like schizophrenia, things like that, and Hulk's depiction of split personalities occasionally fighting with themselves and those seem interesting to me so if you're out there and you're a psychologist or no one who'd like to chat about stuff call me don't call me email me (laughs) it's important to not call me about this you if you're listening and you don't already have my phone number i'm not going to give it to you okay let's talk radiation danny what do you think of when you hear the word radiation what comes to mind i guess i think of big important historical happenings like Chernobyl and Hiroshima and all of the negative things. Yeah, generally those, you know, bigger, scary things uh, that you hear in the news or from reading history, generally something to that you don't want to be around. Yeah, I think there's just the word alone for the lay audience conjures up dangerous levels of damaging radiation. But Lumen, in my understanding to a physicist, radiation is just when energy is transmitted through a medium, right? It's like a very broad term. 
Yeah, uh, as you put it, uh, it's very broad term. I mean, your microwave emits radiation, and that's how it heats up your food. The light that we see is also a type of radiation. Uh, there's different wavelengths, like different uh, sizes of these waves. The danger, or perhaps the concern, may come from what energy these waves are coming at you at. It's my understanding that the smaller the wavelength, the greater the energy contained in the wave. Is that right? Yeah, that's a fair, uh, a fair description of it. Um, you can also think about the size of the object they can probe. So like a microwave, maybe a slice of smaller human, so to speak, uh, the wavelength of light that we tend to see, like the color, the colors of the rainbow, tend to be in the uh, nanometer range, which is about the size of a, an amoeba or a protozoan of some sort. And so the smaller you get, you get to atomic size, which can split atoms. And so there's a, a wide range of sizes you can get, depending on what energy range you're looking at. I think it sometimes might surprise people that radio waves, X-rays, yellow, and Hulk-inducing <laughs> gamma rays are just different sizes of the same thing, or just light, just different wavelengths of EM radiation. So the light, when you said nanometer, you mean like the distance between two crests of the wave? Yes. Right? Yeah. So when we see like an ocean wave, one after the other, and they're 200 meters or 100 feet or whatever apart, whatever system we want to use apparently, <laughs> We could say that wavelength is 100 feet or whatever, but when we're talking about, like you say, visible light waves are nanometers apart. So that's uh, 1 times 10 to the minus 9 meters. So very small. Very small. So that'd be 0 0.90s and a 1, right? Yes, sounds about right. Yeah. Tiny is the point. And then radio waves, they're going to have wavelengths of like dozens of meters, right? Yeah. It's interesting, right? The technology, it's, you know, you can... Uh, some radio antenna is waving these waves at your car and as you drive away you can hear it but you know once it gets to a certain distance from the area where you're where they're transmitting from you can no longer hear the radio you hear static so gamma rays or gamma radiation is there a difference there by the way because we throw those two terms around i think pretty willy-nilly so i i think the distinction will come like you have a single gamma ray but you have many radiations radiation units or uh, many instances of radiation. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so that level is the highest energy level? That's the highest category? Yes. It's on the highest end of the spectrum. Up at the high end of the spectrum, we have x-rays and then it'll eventually, we call them gamma rays if they're high enough energy or low enough wavelength. Is there a fundamental difference between those two kinds of things or is the distinction there just an arbitrary? Well, we'll say when they're this small that we call them gamma rays. Each of the terms, like, you know, x-ray, visible and ultraviolet and all those they don't have exact values but they do have specific ranges so like the visible light is the range between 400 nanometers and 700 nanometers give or take a little bit of wiggle room and at the highest end you do have gamma rays and that tends to be a larger range but i suspect whether the name comes from or the effect comes from is a chicken versus egg situation but um, mm -hmm. one of the types of radioactive decay is called gamma decay danny did you watch the recent ish chernobyl show no the most recent chernobyl things i've seen in the news are i mean actually a couple of years old i think i saw it in one of the more recent david attenborough shows that was kind of about like how nature has overtaken the site of the meltdown a lot of life has come back uh in some really crazy ways to their foxes and different animals is the one you're talking about more of a documentary 
Now, it was a uh, an HBO show. I only brought it up because the scene I think they got in the trailers and got everybody excited about it was they were saying that they were expecting a reading of 3.6 Röntgen, and oh. the guy comes back from measuring it, and he says, it's not 3.6 Röntgen, it's 1,500. Lumen, what's a Röntgen? Or broadly, how do we measure radiation? Okay, so there's different ways to do it depending on what you're interested in looking at. Okay. We call it disintegration. So if an unstable nucleus undergoes decay, it can undergo a certain amount of decay events in a certain amount of time. That's what we call the half-life. Now, that can be measured in a unit Curie, after Madame Curie. But if you're talking more about the what the biological implications of receiving this radiation, there's several other units that can be used. The routing specifically, because I can never know how to say that properly. I'm just imitating the people that are doing a fake Russian accent on HBO. That one specifically, and this is perhaps a bit technical, but it's the amount of electric charge that a particular radiation event imparts upon a specific volume. So how much energy is released by this thing in a cube of air? The more important one for what we'll be talking about in the near future will be the unit for the effect of the radiation on the human body. And that one is a sievert. That is also a familiar term, and I think often measured in millisieverts because a full sievert is so damaging. Is that right? Yes. So it's a radiation dose. So how much radiation are you receiving per unit mass? So the source of the radiation at that point is almost unrelated to, to that measurement. There could be 50 sources that are very weak, but if I'm absorbing from all of them, I'm concerned with the effect it's having on me. But you would worry about the sources of radiation because depending on how energetic the particles coming out of the radiation are and what type they are, they may cause more damage. Great. And this is where we should talk about the different types of radioactive decay. Yes. So let's talk about that. The EPA tells me, not like in an interview or anything, I mean their <laughs> website, that unstable atoms can release alpha particles, beta particles, and or gamma rays. First, Danny, this is an unfair quiz. Unfair in that I'm quizzing you on things we haven't covered. What do you think the difference is between, on one hand, an alpha or beta particle, and on the other, a gamma ray or gamma radiation? What's your guess? These are things that I definitely studied in school and cannot pretend to give a real answer right now. <laughs> what did you study in school? I, I assumed it was something in social science. It, it was. No, I just mean in like high school, chemistry and physics, definitely things that I recall, terms I recall, where I'm like, yes, that is a thing in science. <laughs> I did not study alpha particles and beta particles in high school. I mean, I didn't wow. study them. It was just like, this is what they are. That's a much fancier physics education. Like uh, we were rolling marbles down hills. <laughs> Hey, that's an important, very real-world example of a type of decay and also gravity. <laughs> yeah, you got to start somewhere. Exactly. Okay, we're going to go through some steps. Lumen, first, what is an unstable atom? So I love to use the Lego analogy. So if you have a bunch of Legos, like say you've built like a cute little Lego cube. Now your Lego cube is just going to sit there and do nothing, right? That would be what we call a stable isotope. Now, it doesn't have any energy to lose, it's just going to stay in its stable state for, you know, the length of the universe. Now, let's say you were to put that Lego brick onto a piece of Lego on top. So kind of like it's teetering. Okay. So if you were to push it over, the Lego brick would fall and potentially break, right? Yep. We can think of an unstable isotope in that sense. So the idea is if an isotope has excess energy, it will want to emit it. So it will want to decay is what we call that process expel something of itself and then come to a more stable configuration. So it has more energy than it normally would. And in order to sort of get back to a less energetic, more long lasting configuration, it will emit some of this energy. 
Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. And it would may it may emit that energy as a particle or a gamma ray, depending on sort of the configuration it has. So uh, do you guys remember the noble gases that you were taught in chemistry? Danny, that's a that's a color commentator question if I ever heard one. <laughs> I roughly remember like where on the periodic table they are. I would be scared to try to like name off examples and disappoint you, Lumen. <laughs> you remember that they're noble gases because they didn't really interact with anything, kind of just hanging around, right? Like we recall right. the fact that they don't really interact with much. Like helium. Helium is yeah. there, right? Yeah. They were relatively inert. Like they're not gonna yes. you can have them in a room and they're not gonna explode. In nuclear physics, helium is a, an analog to a stable isotope. You know, it's configurations of the particles that make up the nucleus, which is what we call the inner part of the atom, protons and neutrons. They're in a configuration such that they don't really want to move anywhere. They're fine where they are. They're a noble gas. An unstable nucleus would have either too many protons or too many neutrons and just decide that this is not, and I'm deciding makes it sound like it's sentient, but no, it's a random <laughs> process by which the nucleus will release energy and come to a more noble gas-like configuration. Okay, so I, I kind of understand why too many protons would be a problem, because in my head, even though actually last week, as we discussed with a particle physicist, the <laughs> idea that protons and neutrons are not little balls that are stuck together. But yeah. if we stick with that bad analogy, with the protons all being positively charged, that's too much positive charge, and one of them gets kicked out. That kind of works in my head. But the neutrons being neutral, how would there be like too many of them? So you have the uh, like charges repelling situation with the protons, but there's also a uh force that binds we call this collection of stuff inside the nucleus nucleons uh, there comes a point where you cannot continue attaching it's almost like there's no more glue for you to attach any more neutrons okay there's no enough force binding them together and so the neutron kind of just pops out so there's a point which you cannot continue adding on neutrons okay so if i'm gonna live in the land of analogies where I am most comfortable. If I'm making my model atom for science class, as I did in eighth grade, I made uranium, which took a lot of styrofoam. And at a certain point, though, there's not enough places to connect the styrofoam ball onto the other styrofoam balls. And so it can't hang on. How's that? That would be a very good visualization of it, I would think. Okay. I, li I like that. You know, you're out of toothpicks or you're out of places to attach them. I like that. Okay, that feels like a very tiny win. I feel like I'm, I'm back in eighth grade. <laughs> so that's how alpha and beta particles are sort of kicked out. Is is it that an alpha particle is a proton, a beta particle is a neutron, or is it more complicated than that? It sounds like it'd be more complicated. It's a little bit more complicated. Okay. It's just like their Greek names, and obviously there's, you know, you ascribe meaning to these things. Uh, so an alpha particle is a helium nucleus. So it's four protons, four neutrons in like a little packet. And it's it's really it's a really stable nucleus, and so it can, depending on the size, the amount of energy a, a nucleus has, it can just emit that package together. And so, really heavy things like uranium and plutonium will decay via alpha decay. So it'll just pop out a helium nucleus. Goodbye. Okay, so rather than like in my styrofoam model, I can't put the last one on. I put it on anyway, and a whole chunk falls off. Yeah, well, we'll continue with we that. We want to torture yeah. this analogy a little more. Yes, yeah. So a beta particle is an electron or a positron, depending on the type, because beta decay comes in two flavors. Okay. It gets a little complicated. Yeah, when you start talking about antimatter, it's getting kicking up a notch in complication. Danny, this is another unfair quiz time. Do you recall what a positron is? <sighs> the opposite of a electron? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Okay. Totally. Okay. That's what it is. Where was that in your brain? I don't know. I just vaguely remembered electrons being 
negatively charged. The only sci-fi example of positrons that I can recall is that Commander Data in Star Trek <laughs> has a positronic system rather than an electronic system. He has a whole bunch of antimatter in his head, which was just a, such an unnecessary complication. It is a very sci-fi sounding yeah. Oh, yeah. term. Positron. He had a positronic matrix. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, so a beta particle may be antimatter being emitted from the nucleus of an unstable atom? Yep. Wow, okay. Very, very pithy. Yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> okay. You got your nucleus getting rid of antimatter. In beta decay, you have the nucleus emitting an electron, but also another particle, which depending on the type could be an antineutrino, which is another antiparticle, or a neutrino. And so it's kind of like opposite and like you can't have beta decay without those two pieces. Because otherwise you start uh, disobeying conservation laws and you know the universe breaks. Right. We don't want that. Yeah. Mm -mm. But the third type, the one that unfortunately Bruce Banner was bathed in, is gamma radiation. This is a photon being emitted. Right. A little packet of energy. What is gamma radiation? Uh, gamma decay is, we would call it a de-excitation. So the nucleus still has a lot of energy, but instead of emitting a mass particle, a massive particle, it emits uh, this gamma ray. And it's a way for the nucleon to de-excite. So if you imagine you have a nucleus with three energy states, you know, you've got one, you got two, you got three. Let's say the nucleus is just really excited. So it's at level three. And so it emits a gamma particle, and then it de-excites to level two. And then maybe it might emit another one, and it de-excites to level one. This is all in the name of coming to a stable state. Now, a gamma ray doesn't mean a change in particle number, but it does mean a change in energy. So we still have the same number of protons and neutrons at level three and level one. It still, so to speak, weighs the same, but there's a little less energy contained in there. Yeah. And so it's happier. This is a natural process, right? This is happening all the time all around us. Bananas uh, are yes. lightly radioactive. Bananas will shoot gamma radiation at you. There's actually an unofficial unit of radiation measurement, which is the banana unit. <laughs> you can quantify how much radiation you're receiving based on a banana. In fact, the concrete that you're sitting around right now is also slightly radioactive due to potassium as well. Okay, two things I didn't know. There's potassium and concrete. It's a very small amount, but enough that it's slightly radioactive. Also, your partner is also radioactive. Slightly, not much. So are you. Is that also the potassium? It could be a, a wide range thing of things. I don't know the percentage. In a non-insignificant amount of carbon-14 in your body right now. Interesting. And so these are just slightly unstable, releasing very small amounts of radiation. So the odds of being damaged by these are pretty slim. They're like by a banana, one is just so unlikely to do any damage. It all, it all has to do not only in the amount that you would ingest or be exposed to, but also in the energy of the radiation. I think it's time for the most important question and what we've been building to. Danny first. Danny, what happens when you shoot gamma rays at a person? Yes, I've studied this question long and hard. Not good things. Not good things. I mean, the images it conjures up are, besides Hulk-like transformations, I just think of um, different kinds of mutations or skin problems and, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of images. So we're 100% bad, basically. Mm. Lumen... What happens when you shoot gamma rays at a person? How much and at what energy? Okay, enough Ooh. to turn me into the Hulk. Whatever happened to Bruce Banner, what happens if I absorb that much, which is not specified, by the way? So an imaginary amount, enough to give you superpowers and turn you green. Based on my, my very cursory research on the Hulk's accident, <laughs> it was a detonation, a detonation of the G-bomb he was developing. See, it varies about what version. The MCU Hulk's Hulkification, which is a <laughs> word now, is 
covered in a montage during the opening credits of The Incredible Hulk. It is very quick. So at the top of the episode, I said that he was trying to recreate the super soldier serum using gamma rays instead of vita rays, which is what (laughs) created the super soldier serum, which as far as I know are just not a thing. So this Dr. Banner was trying to replicate the serum they used on me? You were the world's first superhero. Banner thought gamma radiation might hold the key to unlocking Erskine's original formula. Didn't really go his way, did it? Not so much. He was sitting in a chair. He was biting down on a thing. There was green light at his temples. Now he's the Hulk. Oh, pre-question question. Are gamma rays green? No. There is a type of radiation that may glow blue. I'll take it. What's that? <laughs> it's okay. It's called Cherenkov radiation. So you know how we say that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light? Sure. That's the specific definition is nothing can travel faster than the speed of light in vacuum. Very high energy particles can travel faster than the speed of light in medium. So, so you have a super energetic particle traveling faster than the speed of light in water. That will cause radiation. I saw it once, and it was very interesting. Wow, you've seen Cherenkov radiation? Yes. So when you say it's faster than the speed of light in water, the speed, the unit of measure there is speed of light in water. That has a max, and speed of light in air has a max. And this particle causing this glow is still traveling slower than the, the speed of light in vacuum, but faster than the speed of light for the medium in which it is traveling. Is that the idea? Yes, that's exactly right. Oh, all right. Nailed it. Yeah, you got, you got it. I'm going to start a scoreboard. <laughs> okay, so what happens if you shoot a lot of gamma radiation at a person? So it has to do with the what we discussed at the beginning with the size of the wavelength, right? So when you're starting to get to gamma rays and to the very far end of that spectrum, is you start being able to damage things like the nucleides in your DNA. And so depending on the amount of radiation and the energy that you're exposed to, you may cause damage to your cells. And that could be of several different types. You can either damage the cell enough that its life-sustaining processes are no longer life-sustaining and it dies. You can damage the cell enough that it tries to repair itself and succeeds. So it's just, you know, going to continue living its little cell life. You can damage it enough that it's going to pass on those uh, al- that altered DNA onto its daughters. And so the next generation of cells or the next generation of um, offspring, you know, sons or new daughters may be affected where a mutated cell can pass on its genes onto its offspring. So the cell that gets damaged by the radiation, we're talking the light wave physically hits the DNA. Its wavelength is just the right size, damages the DNA in a way that it survives but repairs itself in a different way it doesn't repair itself all the way it's got a scar so to speak and then passes on that scar to its offspring and then if it's the right kind of cell to the organism's offspring i suppose that'd be one way to look at it you can definitely probably physically damage the nucleus of a cell and the the dna there but you can also have a situation where the gamma particle interacts with the water inside the cell that splits the compounds in the cell and then they can recombine to become unstable chemicals and like dangerous chemicals, like apparently, according to my reading, hydrogen peroxide, which will effectively cause the cell to die. You know, there's several different ways that gamma radiation can interact with the cells in our bodies. Um, and then based on those interactions, you can have different types of mutations or cell death and so on. It's all very intricate. So one of the ways you described where a cell could be damaged, the DNA would be damaged, then replicate itself in a new damaged way, that's cancer. Right. So. I was doing some research on radiation therapy for cancer because that was very confusing to me. Yeah. And how we're using the same process to fix the problem, basically, when used in concert with many other things. And 
what I read was it's the same exact thing. What we're we're just aimed at the cancer cells, and what we're trying to do instead of getting them to slightly damage themselves and repair themselves and replicate themselves, we're just going for the first option you mentioned, which was damage and destroy. Sorry, I'm geeking out a little bit because the technology is just being applied in so many different ways. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and there's different ways you could do it, uh, depending. And this is where uh, we can have a throwback to our particle types. Depending on the type of cancer you're treating and the depth kind of like within our body, you can use the different types of particle radiation to then affect the cancer more specifically. Wow. The, the fact that we can have that much control over something that seems well uncontrollable. Well, it's not uncontrollable. We are, here we are controlling it. But the fact that it that we're able to fine-tune it so much is, is pretty amazing. And I think that speaks a lot, and I mean, maybe I'm getting a bit of my soapbox here, but that speaks to, you know, the advances of this technology over the decades and decades it's been going on. It's, we know enough that we can now use it for more immediate applications, um, aside from, you know, the fundamental science for science's sake, um, where, you know, we start treating different types of cancer, the different types of isotopes that we can generate at facilities uh, all around the world. Danny, I have a serious question for you in the same vein if you could be the hulk would you mm. the mcu hulk knowing the outcome eventually where he spends 18 months in a gamma lab i put the brains and the brawn together best of both worlds knowing that that's your end game no pun intended <laughs> would you still have gone through what he went through you think to be the hulk so in order to get to that optimal state where he can be the hulk at will or whatever how you just described would I be willing to go through the initial bumpy phase with like having to control my anger and rage and all of that? Yeah. I don't know that I would because I wouldn't want to cause so much collateral damage and have my <laughs> friends and family be terrified of me. I, I was reading something about in the, I don't know what version again, he sets up like a, a fund to rebuild the homes of the people he's destroyed and things like that. Like, you know, he has some philanthropic society to do, to handle the damage that he causes. I think in the MCU, they just rely on uh, Tony Stark's money for all that. <laughs> There's a scene True. where Tony's saving somebody and he buys a building before flying into it. How quickly can we buy this building? <laughs> oh my gosh, I forgot about that. So you think overall still bad, Danny? Yeah, I mean, it makes for good drama in a movie. Like, will he or won't he restrain his his rage and inner demons? But if it were me, I do not think I would. I mean, it would be cool for, like, self-defense if people are like, oh, we don't want to mess with him because he'll destroy us all. That's kind of cool. But I don't think it would be... <laughs> I don't think it would be worth the potential that would be there for, you know, accidentally crushing someone that I cared about or something like that. <laughs> that is... Pretty hefty downside. Yeah. But I do like the later like evolution where he seems to master the ability somewhat to turn back and forth. That would for sure be great. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. So if it were snap your fingers. He can do it with the snap of his fingers like this. And back and forth between Bruce and the Hulk. You'd sign yeah. on, you think? Yeah. But then I guess it would just be kind of, that would not make for good drama because it would just be like, whatever I want, I will become an unstoppable green monster and then there's no like there's no tension yeah i think no tension and no drama in our lives is probably a good thing <laughs> yes there is that this is true i have a, an interesting anecdote about a, what you could argue to be an event like the hulk's exposure to radiation in that amount but in real life if you would like to okay <laughs> yeah so, and i mean this is preface this all by the fact that unfortunately most of the people that 
were heavily exposed to this radiation did pass away. I think both incidents happened at the Los Alamos laboratory in New Mexico. It's worth pointing out that the most recent guest before you, Lumen, grew up at the Los Alamos laboratory. Kind of jealous. That lab <laughs> just, the lab just has such a, like a, a mythic place in nuclear physics or nuclear science because of sure what the nuclear weapons development but all you know just all the all the names that you learn about when you're studying all these things you know they have radiation units or you know effects named after them so at the los alamos facility they had what was a 3.5 inch diameter ball of plutonium they were trying to to run some tests for criticality so this is these nuclei like plutonium undergo fission spontaneous fission whereby you release pieces of the giant nucleus as other isotopes, but you also uh, release a lot of neutrons. An assembly is what it was called. Uh, would be super critical if the neutrons that were being expelled in this fission process then went on to cause other fission processes, kind of like a chain reaction. Okay. That's effectively how nuclear reactors work. Gotcha. But there's a point where you just release too much and then it becomes a problem. And so this chunk of plutonium was being used in two instances by two different scientists we're trying to study where that criticality point was. Now, the first instance was Harry Deglians was conducting an experiment by himself, which is a big no-no, trying to effectively stack what are called neutron reflectors. So these materials will reflect the neutrons right back at whatever shot them out. What happened was he dropped one of these bricks onto the piece of plutonium. Oh my god. It went super critical. It went super critical for a very a very short amount of time. It was just like a flash. Oof. And he received a fatal dose of radiation and he died 25 days later from acute radiation poisoning. Oof. The second incident was another scientist who was conducting a very similar experiment with the same uh, core is what they were calling it, and kind of like in the presence of a bunch of other scientists and other observers. In this particular case, the reflector wasn't a brick. It was like two hemispheres to kind of like enclose the core. And he was using a screwdriver to keep him apart, which was not <laughs> part of the protocols that that's what he was doing. And the funny thing is, is, Enrico Fermi warned him that something would happen if he were to continue these tests in this manner. So he did this, and one day the screwdriver slipped, and again, flash and suddenly, you know, he was irradiated with a lethal dose of neutron radiation. Lasted about half a second. He managed, because he was kind of like hunking over the assembly, he got most of it, shielding everyone behind him. But, you know, everyone still got a, some dosage of radiation and suffered health effects. That was Louis Slotin. He died nine days after the incident. Wow. And as a result, the core was dubbed the Demon Core. <laughs> yeah, so the situation almost like the Hulk. Well, I'm looking at the script here, and I have the two questions. Danny, what happens when you shoot gamma radiation at a person? And Lumen, what happens when you shoot gamma radiation at a person? It seems the answer is they die. What we're saying is The Incredible Hulk should have been a hospital drama rather than Ed Norton on the run in Brazil. Okay. Danny, you're up. Make that funny. Make, make that funny? <laughs> I sometimes rely on the color commentators to be the professional comedians on the podcast so if you got a good one now's the time i can always make radiation poisoning and death funny <laughs> next up we have a segment in the show called hmm, technically danny and i are going to keep quiet as lumen gives us some nuance or details on anything related even tangentially to the topic lumen you have the floor what i would like to highlight 
as a nuclear physicist in training is the fact that you know, radiation is not inherently scary. Danny, you mentioned at the beginning that whenever anybody mentions the word radiation, it's usually accidents such as Chernobyl, Nagasaki, and Hiroshima that end up coming to your mind. You know, the memories of the stuff that we learn about what happens when you're not careful with radiation, when you're not responsible with it. Well, these events are certainly necessary to remember. Safe working protocols, in the case with the nuclear bombs, is what happens when we don't use technology for the betterment of humankind. Radiation itself can be incredibly powerful as a tool to better our lives. We talked about its potential to be a cancer treatment that is quite successful. It's been used for many decades and more technology is being developed than that. It's also being used quite successfully and safely to produce the energy that we need to power our homes. Uh, France, I believe, has about 20% of its energy derived from nuclear power. And so while it can be scary and it should be respected for the potential to cause harm, it should also be seen as a very powerful tool for us to better our lives in the case of the environment and that it can be used as a useful alternative to things like fossil fuels and coal because it is a very good source of energy that is not as polluting when used properly. Of course, you worry about things like containment and proper use, but these are things that we have experience working with. And if we continue to work on this, the technology will be further developed and we can find better ways to put this technology, better and safer ways to put this technology to use. I don't mean to sound a little preachy, but it always worries me that most people's reactions to the work nuclear are, you know, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. And so, you know, there's good and bad to everything that we learn in science. It's just a matter of being able to put the science and the knowledge and the technology that we develop to good altruistic uses, I would argue. That is... I imagine just as much of a challenge as developing it in the first place. Thank you. And Danny, close us out. What are your final Hulk or radioactive or any kind of thoughts? I appreciate Lumen's comment about not just seeing the bad, scary side of radiation. And I do think that my initial comment to that effect was just because my mind was focused on, you know, the Hulk and the accident and not, not necessarily thinking about the, uh, you know, the renewable energy side of things, which is certainly a really interesting part of the conversation. So yes, for sure, second to that. I think my final thoughts are, one, I frequently am reminded as an adult how interested I was in science in school when I was studying it more frequently. And then I'll remember like a tiny little fraction of something that I once knew, such as tonight. And I'll feel a little bit silly that I forgot it. But then on the other hand, I feel really appreciative of how complex and amazing the universe is and how uh, mind-boggling some of the stuff we were able to invent is. My final thought is that I definitely am, as far as casting choices go, definitely a Mark Ruffalo Hulk aficionado. Even I though, second that. Yes. Even though I used to be a very, I mean, no reason I'm not now, but I used to be a big Edward Norton fan still think he's cool. I thought it was weird when they changed. I didn't know what to think at first, but I have always thought that Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk was just a, a genius piece of casting. You worried me with the casting comment. I thought you were building up to a hot take of Ed Norton should have been the Hulk. And I was going to be like, whoa, we're going to have to have a whole second podcast about that. Because nah, no, I'm on the same page. Ed Norton was great, but Mark Ruffalo, I think he might be my favorite of the MCU actors if I had to. For sure. That's hard to pin down, but he's <laughs> certainly up there. I want to be clear, as always, that I love these movies. Scientific accuracy is not a necessary component for good storytelling. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way. 
Check out more info about each episode and its guests, including upcoming episodes, at DaveReinersman.com slash Marvels of Science. I want to thank my guests, Lumen Wright and Danny Mortensen, for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening, and cross your fingers, there's an episode nine. That's all for this episode. Thanks once again to my guests, Lumen Wright and Danny Mortensen. Their ability to balance the respect and good humor needed for the delicate topic means a lot to me. I'm going to ask you a favor during the credits now. Share this podcast with one friend you think would like it. Your podcast app probably has a share function built in. And if you want to go a step further, I'll ask what every small podcast asks to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. MCU audio clips were taken from The Incredible Hulk, each of the four Avengers movies, Thor, and in a Marvels of Science first, Jessica Jones, Season 1, Episode 3, a.k.a. It's Called Whiskey, and all used entirely without permission. Please don't sue me. The music is a song called On Tiptoe from Purple Planet Music. That song and more royalty-free music can be found at purple-planet.com. And not to brag, but just to clarify for the sake of the credits, all other aspects of the production, including research, writing, and editing, were done by me, Dave Reinersman. Thanks for listening.